0: got to be free man Buenos dias, señores y señoritas. And welcome to yet another edition of Poddywood, the podcast where we talk about movies with the people that make movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, who most definitely was not doing air guitar to the opening music.
1: And with me, as always, is... That'd be me, Andrew Roger Carson. And to be honest, I'm being incredibly cautious because I don't know if you've pressed record yet, Steve. I have pressed record. Well, there's a first. It's
0: recording. No, no. you do it once, you know. You mess up the recording session once and you just get tarred with it.
1: I am still not over the ghost of episode 13. That was the week from hell, which is a shame because it was one of the best guests we had as well. But everything that could have gone wrong with that show went wrong. And I'm glad it's over with. But being how important this week is, I'm actually... Really wondering about this weather that we currently have. We have, apparently, lightning inbound. Oh, wonderful. And what makes it even better
0: is that where I live, I'm on top of a great big hill, so I can just see the house just being hit by lightning at some point. Maybe it's the quickening. Ooh, could be the quickening. You never know. Well, we'll have to ask our guest about that later, see if he recognises the signs.
1: Well, he's sitting in a nice, sunny, warm... Covid rampant, Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was about to call him a lucky bastard, but yeah, they just COVID over there is just going nuts. I know. And it's going crazy over here as well. But nah. oh, it'll be
1: back. It'll be back in time for Christmas. I'm telling you, we're gonna have, we're gonna have the Alabama strain, yeah. which is going to mate with all of the variants out there. Yeah. <laughs> all its brother and
0: sisters. No, the thing with the Alabama strain is, you're fine. It just f- your sister.
1: <laughs> that j- that joke of mine, emphasised by Steve. There, thank you, know, you.
0: The hard of thinking. I know. I know. I was actually thinking that, but then, uh, then I thought, now.
1: Ah, sorry. Just edit mine out and put yours in. It was I funny. will
0: do. <laughs>
1: I have the power. <laughs> so, anyway, shall we check what's in the bag, Steve? Yes. What's in the bag?
0: Because last <laughs> week wasn't as complete disaster enough as it needed to be um well last week uh, for what's in the box we pulled out carlito's way the 1993 al pacino movie about uh the the fictional life of carlito brigante <laughs> carlito brigante yes and, and about how he leaves prison after being a massive heroine lord and then decides that he wants to go straight leave new york and spoiler alert Things don't quite go that way, thanks to his involvement with some rather shady people, not least of which ends up being his uh, his former lawyer, played by Sean Penn. Now, the lawyer's name is David Kleinfeld. Yes. But because of the amount of time I spent playing Vice City, I keep getting the name wrong. So if I get the name wrong, it's not my fault. It's, it's Blame Rockstar. You know, blame them. Because now, actually, now having said that, I can't even remember the name of the character in GTA Vice City, which is this based off. So it's, it's all fine. But I do know that in the game it was played by the great William Fickner. Oh, brilliant William Fickner. Yes, fantastic. But anyway, you've got this story of a man who once led a life of crime, who's trying to get out, and that every single term he's pretty much being dragged back in. There's the, the love of his life who starts distracting him. There's the former gang members that he used to run with. There's his uh, his brother, played by uh, Luis Guzman, uh, who was also in Vice City as uh, one of the enemies, Ricardo Diaz. I remember that one. Um, Ken Rosenberg. That was the character played by William Fichtner. Ken <laughs> Rosenberg. Um... <laughs>
1: The amount of Vice City fans out there that are now satisfied. Yes, now that I managed to... And the amount of movie fans out there couldn't give a shit. I know.
0: I, I actually kind of picture this movie, even though the timeline doesn't match up at all, but I imagine this movie as being kind of what would have happened to Tony Montana if he hadn't have got high on his own supply and was just arrested instead of killed and then came out thinking, you know what? No, I do need to turn my life around. And I think that is down to the fact that the character is very, very similar. You know, he's uh, he's still of Cuban descent. He's got Al Pacino playing him, so obviously you've got that feel behind it all. You've got the same director with Brian De Palma. Yep. Yeah. And De Palma's fingerprints are just all over this thing.
1: What What did you think about the
0: uh, tracking shot? Uh, you mean the attempt at a one shot? Yes. Yes, I say attempt at a one shot. Because they're at the end of the movie there's this great long single take where these bad guys are basically looking for Carlito at the train station. And everything just flows really nicely from one character to another to another. But apparently when they were filming it and they only had one shot at actually doing this one shot... Things got messed up on the very final moments and the camera tracked across too quickly or someone wasn't ready in time. So it all got ruined. So the final shot should have been a reveal of Al Pacino on the escalator, but that was had to be edited in.
1: Yes, but look at it this way. That is a very hard thing to do when it's filmed. Digitally, Ooh. you can easily compensate for that. And I will raise something. I watched Cruella the other day. Thank you, Disney Plus. It was worth every penny. And there I'm was detecting a, a note of sarcasm there. No, no it, was, it was a breath. It was honestly a breath. <laughs> but um, I was watching Cruella the other day, and they do a scene where they end up going through this building to then focus on Emma Stone playing Cruella, or Ella, as she is at the time, uh, actually cleaning a bathroom. But it goes through this entire building, trying to play off as a one shot. And you can see very, very easily a five year old could make it out where all these joints were. And mm. It it was not convincing at all, and I got to thinking about Carlito's way the other day, and this end section where they do this continuous shot, and I thought, wow, there was there was proper skill back then, and now everything is just too easy to get fixed. Didn't De Palmer also do Snake Eyes? He did, and he yeah. also
0: did Casualties of War. He did as well, and there is a link with Casualties of War because you've got Sean Penn and John Leguizamo who reunited for this one. And you mean you mean? Benny Blanco from the Bronx. Benny Blanco from the Bronx. And uh, we've also got a connection with The Shadow, which we'll be talking about with our special guest later on. Because you've got the same screenwriter with David Coop and um Benelope Ann Miller in it as well. Who apparently, uh, John Leguizamo was rather mean about her. But I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, he did later
1: apologize, so potentially, I mean there's a few stories floating around about Carly's way not sure if they're true, and if if they're not true, we want people to basically comment and let us know. Uh, exactly. the one The one that I always remember around the time is the very highly publicized affair Pacino and Penelope Ann Miller were in. Mm-hmm. Well, it became highly publicized because she went and mentioned it in interviews and he was actually engaged at the time. Uh, which led to, apparently, a lot of keep her away from me on set, which is hard when she's playing your love interest.
0: Yeah, and uh, it, as far as I can gather, it also turns out that they kept very, very separate at the premiere as well.
1: Yes. Don't dip your pen in the universal ink.
0: No, definitely not. Otherwise, you'll end up like uh, Vigo Mortensen and have your legs broken. Yes. Yes, because Aragon I... himself is in this movie.
1: I, forgot, I actually forgot he was in the movie. I mean, it's only a small part, but...
0: Tiny little bit. Two things I could think of about that scene. One, he shows up in Carlito's office in this nightclub, which is above the dance floor, and it's looking down and everything, in a wheelchair. Who helped him to get up there in the first place? Why didn't he just meet with him downstairs in a back office somewhere? And all I could think of was that Aragorn did worse than get a broken toe. (laughs) Lord of the Rings (laughs) reference there.
1: Oh, yes. Very good. Very good.
0: Now there's some great moments in there. I, li- I like the the lighting, I thought it was actually
1: funnier than I was expecting. There's one thing I cannot forgive Carlito's way for. What? It's that piece of music that has been used in about 50,000 movie trailers afterwards.
0: Oh god, yes.
1: The the end credits. Yes. And you know, it's great music. It fits it fits in that movie movie brilliantly. But it's one of those that suddenly got every movie trailer going was using that for full-on dramatic... Ugh.
0: Yeah, it's like the the music from the end of Aliens, where they're just taking off from the, the refinery just before it explodes. And oh, that piece of music yes. was used in God knows how many trailers throughout the late 80s and early 90s because of that.
1: Is that the one that goes... den dun dun, 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 yeah. D- yeah. yeah. That, that's, no one's going to know what the hell that music is based off that. <laughs> But if anyone has a trailer they want music for, they're free to use that. Dun dun dun. Um,
0: <laughs> but uh, we will end on one last final nugget of information before we move on to the anniversaries and the the, the director, Brian De Palma, actually shows up in. Sorry, I know I was scratching my nose. It just got really itchy there. It's all that like cocaine, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shows up in the little kind of flashback of Viggo Mortensen. Shaking hands with him, and then Carlito comes in and shakes hands with. Him, so, yeah,
1: yeah, very true. So, is it deserving of its certified fresh? Uh, I think so.
0: Even though it was different to Scarface, it's very, very hard to avoid the comparisons to it, simply because of the lineup. They are two different films, and they have two different fields, but with the characters, the actors, the director and everything, it does feel like an almost an alternate universe version of Scarface. But no, I enjoyed it. It was funnier than I thought it was going to be. It's very long, though.
1: Uh, it feels a lot longer than 139 minutes. It does. Well, that's it. Let's, let's just you some anniversaries.
0: Yes. Watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for
1: free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Well, I'm pretty sure that theme song gets slower every week. You're doing something to it, Steve.
0: I'm not touching it.
1: That, that felt like uh, five minutes long in just 30 seconds.
0: I'm going to have to trim that down even more, then, aren't I? Yeah. It's just going to be the word
1: anniversary before too long. Exactly. But anyway, three anniversaries this week, and you've probably seen one of them. But can you believe, Steve... I don't know, Andy. ...that 40 years ago this week, Tarzan the Ape Man was released? Which means that right around this time, now, today, Bo Derek has probably reached 21 years old.
0: oh Right, no, I have not seen that movie, nor have I seen enough of Bo Derek. But now, when that movie came out, God, I was I was about one, one and a half.
1: Well, true, but I think as you see, Bo Derek is regressing in age because every time I see a photograph of her, she looks younger and younger.
0: It's kind of like Selma Hayek; she's getting older. She's looking better, so phenomenally better. I saw her in the Hitman's Bodyguard the other night; she looks incredible.
1: No, I haven't. I haven't watched the um the second one yet. Yeah, Tarzan the Ape Man, uh, one of uh, Bo Derek's husband's uh, many films starring Bo Derek and Bo Derek's nudity. I, I swear I didn't see her with clothes on until I saw Tommy Boy.
0: <laughs> is is uh, this kind of like what's going on with Paul W.S. Anderson and Milie Jovovich?
1: Paul W.S. Anderson or Paul Thomas Anderson?
0: No, it was Paul W.S. Anderson that did Resident Evil, wasn't it? I believe so. Yeah, he's right, he so the
1: first one and one of the last ones, I think.
0: Yeah, so he keeps hiring his wife... Millie Ovovich to do stuff, and she usually ends up naked. Oh,
1: well, There you go. Yeah, I don't know. Well Tarzan the Eight Man is 40 years old. 25 years ago this week, Twister was released. Nah, which is an old fave. It's an old fave of mine from the Get It Fresh episode. Yep. When we had Mark Marshall and I was talking to him, I actually discovered that Mark Marshall has a bit of a beef with that movie oh. uh, because of its depiction of storm chasing, because then I realised that Mark actually did storm chasing. And you'd be surprised to know that it's a lot more boring chasing the Dread Pirate Roberts to some government funding, apparently.
0: Yeah, well, him being
1: a native Oklahoman, I'm not surprised, really. And then very quickly, 15 years ago, Cars was released, which was, do you know, the last movie of Paul Newman? Oh, was it really? It was. Oh, wow. I'm probably going to be wrong, and we're probably going to get people saying, no, no, he had a small role in this, that or the other. But uh, from what I see on the... Ever reliable and truthful IMDb. Which never, ever <laughs> makes mistakes, ever. Only the ones that we choose to read out, apparently. Yeah. But, uh, now, apparently it was uh, one of his last films, and uh, a lot of his extra voice work that was recorded apparently got used in, I think it might have been Cars 2 or Cars 3.
0: It'll probably be Cars 2.
1: So I don't know if that classes as his last movie or not.
0: I don't know. For some reason but- that he's reminding me of James Stewart's last film which was in uh, American Tale 2, Five will Goes West. Oh, my God. It, yeah,
1: it's the Western connection, being in a desert. That's the uh, stroll off into the sunset But Yeah. Well, that's the only anniversaries we have for this week. Very brief. Very brief this week. Very brief, like um, probably the, the last time you saw them. So, really, we want to get onto the guest, which is who everyone's really looking forward to. And uh, we've got someone I've been dying to get on the show uh, for quite a while and it's really hard to know where to start as this guy's career has spanned over four decades. It's had some of the most memorable and influential movies we all know. I mean, where do we realistically start? Now, do we discuss him being behind the most famous music videos we all instantly know? Do we discuss him being the first director to have a music video on MTV? And for younger listeners, that's a channel that used to play music videos Crazy, right? Now, do we talk about him being behind the greatest killer pig movie ever made in Razorback? Or do we choose some parts, some much-loved movies, and discover what an amazing talent we have in director Russell Mulcahy? Now, over the decades, he's been behind some of the biggest cult favourites and much-loved movies. Movies such as The Shadow, Ricochet, and, of course, Highlander. The movie John C. Riley and Will Farrell call the greatest movie ever made. Now, he's joining us from Los Angeles this morning, where the sun is shining. But
0: the ice is slippery.
1: (laughs) It is. He's the one in being only one, Mr. Russell Mulcahy. Russell, good morning.
0: Good morning, sirs. How are you?
1: we are doing very well
0: yes now that the the weather seems to have settled down a little bit and it's no longer a massive heat spell uh how was that over in los angeles was it keeping you warm
2: uh, it's all pretty typical here i mean we're all just wishing it would rain the lakes are all drying up over here i think we're gonna to have to start to sort of buying water from you guys
1: <laughs> yeah we just had one of the heaviest rainfalls um
2: yeah pipe, pipe it over here pipe it over here
1: <laughs> we will we're actually expecting some lightning today either oh, that or someone's run the prize I love it. <laughs> so russell as i mentioned there's no way that we can fit your entire career into one podcast episode and i, I haven't even touched the surface in all the time that we've been talking together Uh, So we decided there's some things that are kind of expected to be talked about, uh, one we should talk about, and one we really want to talk about. But we have to start early here, as you're among a group of Australian directors that really exploded in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, alongside uh, George Miller, Peter Weir, uh, Philip Noyce, to name a couple. Uh, Did you all kind of have the the same background in film in Australia? Did you all... Kind of come across each other before Hollywood came calling?
2: In a a way, I mean, I I remember when I first moved up to Sydney after high school to start working uh, as a film editor on Cutting News on a TV station. On Friday nights, we'd all sort of get together Phil Noyce and uh, George Miller and uh, Skepsy. uh, We'd all, and I I was the young little buck, and uh, we'd all get together in this sort of upstairs shanty little Room and 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 run run movies and talk movies. It was it was just like sort of a radical little group of us, and uh, so they it, it, there was a connection. and I'm still friends with many of them but there was definitely a connection of the Ausploitation films.
0: Well, you've just brought it up there. In Australia, there is the Ausploitation film, just as you've got things like the exploitation film in Canada, which is, is just them not saying please or thank you. Um, <laughs> but uh, did you find yourself uh, more sensitive to the Hollywood way of doing things or to the native film culture? What were the movies that put you on the path?
2: Well, I mean... My love of cinema started off, you know, when I was, first went to a drive-in theatre. But films that influenced me as a, as a young man or teenager or whatever were basically more, more European films, like Everything Flea did or Pasolini or Ingmar Bergman. And so I was a huge fan of uh, European cinema. You know, give me anything with subtitles and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in. But, you know, I also enjoyed American schlock and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just a big fan of cinema generally.
1: And obviously, before the whole movie career started, you'd become kind of the most prolific music video director by the early 80s. I think that's fair to say. I mean, it is a staggering who's who of artists. You know, you look here, you've got Elton John, Queen, uh, Duran Duran, The Human League, Culture Club, Fleetwood Mac, Billy Joel, the list goes on and on. It's endlessly. Basically, it's every cover of Smash Hits from the early 80s. Ooh. Now. What many people don't know, which, which makes a lot of significance here, is you were kind of left in charge of many of the concepts for these videos. Is that right?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, at the beginning and actually throughout my whole sort of video career, I guess, which was like from 79 to basically the end of Highland at 86, um, 87, I would basically get a cassette. And that's, if everyone remembers, that's um, a bit of plastic with tape inside. And you play the music. Um, but I would just get a cassette in an envelope and, and basically say, they'd say, just come up with an idea, please. Thank you. And you can shoot it next week. You would just put the cassette on, and close your eyes and think of things and try to come up with a concept. And it, I found that rather a lot of fun. Making videos in those days to me was my film school. It was a time when I I was being paid to do it, but I was being paid to basically experiment with my own ideas and, uh, and some worked, some didn't. But yeah, I mean, I was obviously a very frustrated. I was a frustrated filmmaker. I wanted to make movies. And so even you watch the early videos and I was, I was cropping them. So you have letterboxed, everything was letterboxed uh, to make it look like a movie. So I made 400 short films.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and some of them were just groundbreaking ones. Like Andy said, you've got the, the very first music video to appear on MTV. With right. the Buggles. You were also involved with Vienna by Ultravox, weren't
2: you? I did, yeah. Ultravox Vienna, which again is a very black and white European cinema. But the funny thing about the, the videos is that they were my gateway to my dream of making a feature film. And it actually was a Duran Duran video of Hungry Like a Wolf that I produced in Australia, who I knew, but he, I hadn't spoken to for many, many years. And I did a video of Hungry Like a Wolf. He saw it. He rang me up in London. And he said, hey, uh, do you want to come to Australia and do a movie? And I went, oh, yes, please. And and then I said, what's it about? And he said, oh, it's about a giant killer pig. And I went, great. So (laughs) off I went. So it was a a video that got me my first film. And in some respects, Highlander was, I got that basically on the strength of Razorback, but also with my video of the Wild Boys, because Highlander was financed by EMI who also was the record company of Duran Duran. So they saw Razorback and then they saw the Wild Boys and they went, hang on, let's let's offer him Highlander. So yeah, the videos actually were, were a great vehicle for me in those days.
1: You brought many styles to the video industry that are, are just mainstream now, you know. You kind of brought along things like jump cuts, uh, spot color, glass match shots, the, the widescreen ratio, as you mentioned. You know, tracking shots, neon noir lighting, and of course the wind-blown drapes that has been seen in every music video you can think of nowadays. So, and after you did it, everyone started doing it. And I think it's it's kind of fair to say that you know you, you don't receive that recognition for the amount that you really implemented into that area.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's all, it's all, it's all good. Um, <laughs> um, and making videos is basically you've got a palette and you just throw. You mix colours together and you make images and uh, and you, you steal from whatever you like and, uh, and then you get inspired by other stuff and then you lend other stuff to other people. So it's a very free-form market of a creative process.
1: Well, I, I will actually say that I do love Razorback and I think I've told you this before. And funnily enough, only two weeks back I noticed uh, a bit of influence on a project that I've been editing together that I shot over lockdown. Whereas the beginning of one of the chapters opens with this fan and emphasizes the sound of it cutting air as it's spinning, and then I realised after watching Razorback again this week, it was like, oh my god, that was a direct homage to how <laughs> Razorback opened.
2: Of the window, yeah,
1: yeah, you know, it was it was just incredibly artily done.
2: Yeah, I'd been away from Australia for all oh, maybe um, four years. I'd gone back maybe at Christmas to see my mum and whatever, but I really hadn't lived back in Australia for like four years. And I came back to Australia and I was went into the outback. And I sort of saw the outback from slightly different eyes, um, having been overseas for the first time in my life. I, I was in Australia all, all my life and eventually I was, in about 1979, I was sent over to do a little video of a punk band in uh, Birmingham, I'd never been overseas before. So me and the current were stuck on a, this kangaroo flight off to London, Um stayed in a B&B, went up to Birmingham, shot these Garbo and the Death Cheaters. And we were meant to come back in two weeks. And then someone saw the video and they said, stay and do another one, blah, blah, blah. And I stayed not for two weeks, I stayed, I stayed for four years.
1: Wow. Um, and that was consistent work.
2: Yeah, and, and within three months. I was in London, then all of a sudden I was in New York on the Statue of Liberty, and then I was in LA, that's the Hollywood sign. And then I was filming in Morocco and like Paris, and I was like, what's going on? <laughs> um, so yeah, it was uh, quite a whirlwind trip.
1: Well, 35 years ago, you made arguably your most famous movie in mm-hmm. Highlander, as mentioned. Uh, the fans are not going to let us get away without discussing it here today. Uh, this is a movie that has never been better, and itself now is classed as an immortal movie. Now, I actually picked up on the inspiration from The Duelists, and I was actually surprised when I read, just doing some research, that the writer of it, uh, forgive me if I forget his name, uh, was actually drew inspiration from The Duelists in the first ever version of it.
2: Are you talking about Gregory Wyden?
1: Yes, Gregory Wyden, that's the guy. Yes,
2: he wrote Highlander as a... Basically, his final thesis for um, university, and at that time it was called The Dark Knight. Uh, I don't think you'd get yeah. away with that today. No.
0: <laughs> Christopher Nolan would want to word.
2: Yeah, yeah. He, he wrote his script, The Dark Knight, long before whatever. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so so what was the original version that came to you? Because I'm guessing, um, like pretty much all film scripts, it goes through a lot of revision once it actually reaches getting picked up. Um, so was there massive changes from his original version that reached you to your, like, final version?
2: Um, when it came to me, uh, I then met uh, Peter Bellwood and Larry Ferguson, the two screenwriters of Highlander. And it was pretty much the same story. I mean, that was, no, it was the same story, what am I saying? Just other, a lot of stuff was added, like the World War II sequence. There was a lot more sort of um, Kurgan humour put in there uh, and a lot more, more sort of bigger scenes with Ramirez and the trainee sequences and and a bit more of the love interest and the the tragic romance uh, was really brought in. So it was was just um, embellished on a very good, solid script. We just opened up the canvas and uh, sort of let it breathe.
0: Well, the casting must have been seen as a huge gamble by some, because obviously there was Christopher Lambert, who couldn't speak any English at the time. Uh, you had the main villain of Clancy Brown, who up to that point had only really done small roles in movies like Bad Boys. It's mostly told in flashbacks... And the biggest name attached to the movie was Sean Connery, who plays an Egyptian Spaniard who dies after 15 minutes of screen time. So how did all that actually end up coming together?
2: Um, Sean was, I think, agreed to do it in principle real early on. But we didn't have uh, a Highlander, a McLeod. And I remember sitting in the office of the producers in the Gower Studios and flipping through a magazine. And, and all of a sudden this image of Lambert was there from Greystoke. Uh, A full-page, beautiful photograph of him with this sort of brooding look. And it was the brooding look and these sort of eyes and the forehead. And I I said, I think this is the guy. And they went, oh, okay, he doesn't speak English. (laughs) (laughs) But we met him and he was fine. He could uh he could speak broken english and he just sat down and and learned it and we had a speech there person on, on set the whole time and uh he just worked his bollocks off basically and uh pulled it off and the great thing is about the character and the story is he could get away with having this slight sort of broken english french accenting thing going on um, because when he says to the cop, the cop says, where are you from? He says, many different places. Hmm. Um, so yeah, the guy's been alive for like 500 years or whatever, so it's like, it's okay. He's probably lived in, he can probably speak 48 languages. And the same, same thing with Sean Connery. He plays like well, he said, Spanish-Egyptian, but with a Scottish accent. It's just Sean Connery, just habits. You, know, you, you didn't want to change that. Were you
1: kind of on board Highlander around the time, I believe, Kurt Russell was in talks to do Connor McLeod?
0: Uh, no. I think I got on and I think that was dead meat. I'm looking at that, I'm trying to think the about that now in my head, I can't imagine Kurt Russell as Connor McLeod.
2: Well, yeah, it would have been a different movie, They're totally different. It would have been um, Big Trouble in Little Scotland. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> well, funny enough, he went on to do Big Trouble in Little China instead, yeah, which is
2: a great, was a great movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, there were some last
0: minute changes. I think the biggest one is probably going to be the ending was originally going to take place at the Statue of Liberty. That's correct. Yes, and then it got, um, then it got changed to the. Then thank Gobby
2: changed it. I mean, and I was definitely there for, for all that. Uh, we were even. Storyboarding the fight on Statue of liberty, but then we, then we realized that at that time in 1985 or, or the Statue of liberty was covered in scaffolding.
1: Yes, as seen in uh, Remo Williams, the adventure begins.
2: Correct. <laughs> so, um, and on, on an initial scout, and we luckily we had Alan Cameron, the production designer, with us on a, a scout to New York because we shot two weeks in New York for the film, and all the other New York stuff is um, shot in London and faked as New York. But we went for a scout in New York, and we saw this place, the Silver Cup, and uh, we could just fight on that. And the good thing about doing it on the sign is we could film the real sign from the back on location, and then we build the sign on stage. And when I say on stage, some old some concrete pit, um, it was, uh, there was a very strange changing to the sign. The sign was much more spectacular in a way. And I think we really didn't have the budget to do a fight on the Statue of Liberty with all the effects and all that. It was okay for Hitchcock in North by Northwest for a five minute sequence. But to do a whole
0: fight, no. No, But before we move on, I will say this. I I watched Highlander recently, because I don't think I'd watched it in about 10 years, and the lighting and the cinematography on that final battle with the two of them in silhouette, and there's all the water across the floor, and this dark blue light's coming in through the window. I thought it looked absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah, that's
2: when they fall through the roof, yeah? yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was such a beautifully simple set. Um, I always uh, respond to that. It was like some of the simplest of sets are of the best. And uh, you, you think of like Doctor Strange Love. It's basically just some screens. It's all black, just black drapes, some you know a, a beautiful table with uh, lights around it. And it's probably one of the greatest sets ever made for, mm, for film. Definitely. But that, that, those those windows. It was basically again in a brick warehouse with black drapes and there's some sort of, uh, big fake windows with light. And that's it. Just you just film the guy's silhouette with a wet floor and me kicking the lumacrane so it would go fast across the, the ground. Um, yeah, it was fun kicking that lumicrane. <laughs> <laughs> Bang! Off we go. <laughs> that was one of the last scenes we filmed in London and by that time the boys, Clancy and Chris, were really good at the sword fights. So there's no doubles there and they really knew how to, how to do it with very little rehearsal. I think they'd all be nicked enough. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think obviously... When you, as well as talking about the ending, the the opening shot of this movie, you know, which is uh, not Madison Square Garden. I've had a couple of people say that, you know, it is not Madison Square Garden. It is just posing as it was. It was either Continental Airlines or the Meadowlands. Arenas. Yeah, I think it was
2: in New Jersey or somewhere like that. Yeah. Somewhere. It wasn't Madison, no. And it wasn't in Manhattan, no. The exterior, when he, when he drives out, is actually Madison Square.
1: Yes. Yes. That is, that is a really good cut to outside. Uh, but it was the movie that introduced me to uh, the fabulous Freebirds, who was the bad guy wrestlers in that scene. So th- thanks for turning me on to wrestling, Russell.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we, we, yeah, we had the, the place. It was, it was a regular wrestling night with a regular audience, packed. And we were allowed to invade their evening. Not that they might. We had the for 10 minutes. We put our guys in there for 10 minutes and film our, our scene. And it was great. We had the whole audience reacting. It was, it was fabulous. There's no actors in there. It's all that's all real footage. And obviously, then when we get closer up to Chris,
0: then we shot that the next day with the, you know like 50 extras.
1: And it's perfect. It's a perfect opening shot. Yeah.
0: That crane shot as well. Lovely. It's not even a crane shot, is it? The it's the
2: it's a it's a cam. What
0: do they call it? Yeah. It's um it's one of the
2: first times it was used. Developed by um the guy who developed Steadicam and. Uh, it, it's quite a, a very clever device, um, basically just wires pulling in and letting go, and it was, it was clever. I mean, now you would do it with a drone. Exactly. Um, and uh, you'd you just film the whole movie with the drone. I mean, if you about Highland now, I mean, the drone would have be been so so useful in that movie. Yeah, because oh. I, mean, I mean, I know even like the battles in Scotland, we had cameras on wires. I used to call them flying foxes, and basically it was a camera on a wire, on a steep white and you just let it go and the camera would just spin over people, um, and then someone would try to catch it at the other end, (laughs) and sometimes they'd miss. (laughs) Um, But yeah, pre-drone. Highlander is pre-drone, pre-CG, pre-most anything. So most everything is theatrical techniques.
1: Well, I know that, um, just as a bit of a side note here, the guy that... He invented that crane shot was also the guy as you mentioned yeah, who Garrett, Garrett created Brown. steadicam. Yeah, Garrett Brown. And he created that for the Werewolf movie, Wolfen, for those of you who might yes, remember the that known yes. film. Yeah. steadicam. The well, I know that Steve is dying to ask a queen question. We're not going to get yes. away with it, are we, Steve?
0: No, you're not. No, no, you're not. <laughs> because you cannot talk about Highlander without mentioning the now iconic soundtrack. Performed by the rightfully legendary Queen. So, how Great. was it working with the band, and what was the process in creating such a fantastic score? Because they had so much influence on things, didn't they? Yeah, I
2: mean, I I, I don't think they would have done it if not. One, they were they were semi interested when they heard that I'd done this film because they they knew my reputation with the music videos. So, what we did is we put together a twenty minute. Uh, reel of scenes from the movie some action scenes some of the Beatty dying about you know some of the uh, various a number of scenes and they all came the whole band came sat in the civil theater we closed the door and stood outside and crossed our fingers and um, We hoped that we we're gonna do some like a good opening song like Flash Gordon which, uh, which I really loved and they came out of the cinema and they went yep that's, uh, <laughs> Really enjoyed that but the problem is we're gonna give you five songs one, we what? <laughs> what? the sun just came out. What's, what's happening? And yeah, so it was uh, it was wonderful. And then uh, they they just wrote brilliant, beautiful songs. Became good mates and uh, became very, very close, dear friend to Freddie. And uh, yeah, it was a, quite quite an extraordinary. Not only great music, but great friendships were made, yeah. Well, they did
1: They did the five songs, but did they sneak the really sneaky New York, New York one in as a sixth? Oh, oh yeah, yeah <laughs> that, yes,
2: uh, yes. And that took a little convincing for me to Freddie. He really didn't want to do it.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I think so uh, Roger... And me sort of convinced him to do it. And when he did do it, he really had a blast doing
1: it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is quite funny because you actually have a very tiny little cameo in the scene where that uh, song is played. That yeah, I noticed I'm, you run over,
2: I'm run over by the children. <laughs> yeah. Oh,
1: when I was really? Watching, I didn't know I, I did yeah. that. I was watching it the other night uh, with my partner. And uh, as soon as I saw that face turn around and get run over, I was like, Was that Russell? It was almost like I was in the car and you'd bounced over. It's like, Was that Russell? <laughs> we just ran over. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah, it's very it's very quick. It's, a, it's a no roll. but I had, I had to be killed. Come on, if you're going to do a cameo, then get splattered.
0: Well, Highlander Two uh, has got a thirty year anniversary coming out this year, but to be honest, that needs an entire episode just on its own to discuss that one. But thirty years ago, you also directed Ricochet, starring Denzel Washington and John mm-hmm. Lithgow. Very sinister and violent thriller in comparison to the other movies of yours that was cut down after test screenings. thought it was even more so. What went missing and why?
2: Um, I'm not going to go too deeply into that, but there was there was a particular scene which I thought was pretty fantastic, but maybe it was just not the right decade to do it in. Uh, you could probably get away with it now. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but there was a, a scene which I thought was rather crucial, but it upset... Um, one person in the audience who stood up and screamed at the screen and so uh yeah that i think that inspired the rest of the preview audience so at the end of the film that everyone seemed to enjoy but when the preview cards came back basically the comments were love the film but (laughs) i'll just say this it it read get rid of the shower scene (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay, now now you have my curiosity. I mean, I'm not going to say no,
1: no, no. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, better so, to the, leave people and wondering. So,
2: and, so, and so that scene, that scene was cut out uh, at like 7 a.m. the next morning, and the negative destroyed. I, I believe the negative was destroyed. I, I don't have a copy of it. Um, but it's a very good scene. It's very powerful scene. It's not what you think. It's not not a sex scene.
1: Oh, no, the no, disappointment no, no, there no. for you, Steve. Never mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So why do you think, Russell, I mean, we've discussed this also, but why uh, do you think Ricochet's never been released in its full aspect ratio to this day in uh, any it's medium?
2: It's totally frustrating. Again, it- it's one of those horrible things when you've done the film, everyone's happy, it's, all, it's anamorphic, it's widescreen, it's uh, had Madonnas come, come to, came to the entry room and watched the movie and loved the movie. And it was all fantastic. And then uh, I, I went off to do another film overseas, and realised when I got back that they'd done the VHS, uh, DVD transfers. Basically, they'd cropped it with pan and scan. Um, I think there could be a Japanese version that's um, anamorphic two three five. It's really sad because what, what's even more tragic is when you watch it, the only title sequences um, is in
1: widescreen. <laughs>
2: is in yeah. super widescreen, and it's. Um, it's got that sort of Bernard Herming sort of like score, and it's exhilarating and fabulous. And then the title's finished, and bang, it cuts to like basically whatever full screen, and it's really depressing because it's a beautiful looking film, but it does I don't think it looks that beautiful when it's blown up the way it is. Also, I've and it's been
1: that. released on HBO Max now as well, and it is still the cropped version. Release the okay, cut. Yes. Yeah, that would
2: I, that would make me very happy. Yeah, I don't know why that can't be done. I mean, there must it, there must be copies.
1: I'm sure Joel Silver must have one. He'd
0: probably yeah. got one lurking around no. somewhere.
1: Yeah. No, funny enough, Ricochet was uh, Richard Mirisch's first movie working for Joel Silver, and he's a guest in two weeks. So I'm going to ask him, "Where's the Mulcahy cut of uh, Ricochet? And do you have a copy?"
2: Where's the widescreen, Internet gold, whatever? I mean, yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's I didn't know it was on HBO Max, and shame. Anyway well that's really, that's really depressed my morning, hasn't it
0: <laughs> well okay let's move on and talk about something else something a little bit yeah. brighter the shadow uh-huh. uh, now before we had superheroes every week we had possibly one or two every year or so and this was mostly because of Tim Burton's Batman being this colossal juggernaut at the box office mm-hmm. now this was a batman year off and in this year we had the shadow the crow and the mask as the summer superhero heavyweights now unlike the master movie focused on a lot of character development and limiting the use of cgi uh but what was what was your inspiration in bringing this to the screen how far back to the original source material did you go I
2: was working with david kept the screenwriter and there were definitely elements of the original that we wanted to keep, but then we also wanted to sort of, even though it set in period, but we wanted to update it and give it um, a smartness, a, a, more of a charisma. So we just modernized it in its dialogue and its um, effects and um, powers and whatever. Um, we just wanted to have fun with it. But yeah, some of the earlier stuff was a little too campy. I mean, some of the radio, early, early serial stuff was a little little on the nose. So we had to sort of tread a very fine line there in doing this sort of adventure character that, who was who had a dark heart. So it was a very fine line to tread. Uh, but I think uh, David did a really, really good job.
1: Obviously, with this film, you were filming on the Universal backlot. Yeah. Uh, which I have walked twice and got caught once <laughs> with, our first, with our first guest, uh, Becca Marks. I didn't know you couldn't just freely walk around where all the tour was going. But we scared the hell out of Norman Bates because he doesn't really have people come and talk to him.
2: What are you What are you talking about?
1: They have a Norman Bates at the Bates Motel. They have an actor dressing up as Norman Bates to come out and scare all the tourists going by on the bus.
2: Really? At the hotel?
1: Yes, at, at I, the hotel. I mean,
2: I, when, I went to, when I went to Universal, that wasn't going on. So you could actually go up to the Bates Motel and it was all dirty inside. I mean, the, the bathroom's there uh, where she gets murdered, but it's all like, it had crap and leaves in there and, like, yeah, it was quite amazing, actually.
1: Was she still in the shower? That's what we need to know.
2: No, but I did, <laughs> I did clean up some of the blood.
1: <laughs> well, were you actually shooting when uh, the earthquake hit L.A. and it yes, apparently yes, destroyed yes, yes, your yes, Hall of mirrors set, didn't it?
2: Yes. Um, it actually – it happened – the earthquake happened on the morning when we were all meant to be driving up to Foxville. Um, <laughs> way out way where? Up. <laughs> you know it's on the map just google <laughs> google Foxville. Um, no but I mean so yeah it was, it was the morning that we were all meant to drive up and it was the morning that all those freeways collapsed um, yes sort of stopped us going up there for a day until we could work out another route to sort of get around uh, but Universal was shut down the whole stage was shut down um, for like a week, I, that, I, that was amazing. 5:30 in the morning, I was having my, my coffee ready to head out,
0: and yeah. Well, Universal put a fair bit of push into this being a new franchise, and some say that the target audience was severely split by the release of The Mask within relatively the same time frame, and The Lion King that was just dominating.
2: The well, Lion King pushed us to number two on opening weekend, yeah, and, and we can never, never break that.
0: The House of Mouse does it again.
2: Yeah, now, and, uh, hey, Lion King. I'll bow to it. Great, great film.
0: Well, how did everything unfold on its release, and how did the news reach you that Universal were going to be pulling the plug on this potential franchise?
2: Uh, well, uh, yeah, I was looking at the the box office returns, and it's completely understandable. It's, yeah, uh, it's, it's sad, but you know, hey, box offices are very fickle, and um, and it's a it's a business so they had to do what was right for the company.
1: Well, the funny thing is, is time has been really kind to The Shadow, and it's now, you know, it's a very well-loved movie 25 years later. It's been discovered by new fans. I've seen a lot of posts on The Shadow uh, this year alone on social media of people in the industry now who weren't back then, and it obviously had some kind of effect on them. Uh, One question I wanted to ask, you know, do you feel... This movie should have been moved to a different spot in the year, uh, say earlier in place of uh, the Flintstones or maybe later in place of something like the River Wild, you know, on that universal schedule. Do you feel it would have fared better?
2: Oh, possibly. I mean, but I can't predict that stuff. I, mean, I don't think anyone did. I mean, I don't think I don't think they put it on the weekend that it was released as a suicide pact. I think it was just the <laughs> way, to, you know. And you know, hey, I'm sure I'm sure they thought the Flintstones was going to be a huge smash hit. Also, you know, I mean, uh... yeah,
1: well, it was a
0: hit. It just wasn't very well liked. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> I do actually remember going seeing the Flintstones with my mum and a friend of hers and her daughter, and it was it was it was all right. But then again, when you're about fourteen, you just think, like, yeah, whatever. I-,
1: I couldn't forgive it because of the B52 song that was everywhere for oh, God, yeah. what felt like years. More than Brian Adams, everything I do. <laughs> yeah, it was everywhere
0: but in terms of The Shadow last year when everything was locked down I was feeling a bit miserable and I went back and I was looking at loads of movies which I kind of watched back during say the 90s and uh, haven't seen in years so I pulled out a few which are kind of set around about the same time frame one was The Rocketeer which I, right. which I Good movie. gave me a brand new appreciation for and the other one was The Shadow and yet again, it was one of those where I just sat down and watched it. And went, ah, yes, this reminds me of a much happier time. I love, I love this film now that I've been able to get back to it again.
2: Good, yeah, that's why we made it so you can enjoy it. Have a bit
0: of entertainment.
1: Well, Steve, I know you have some very quick fire questions from some of your Reddit faithful.
0: Yes, I posted onto Reddit on the uh, slash. Highlander uh, subreddit and a couple of the users on there have uh, have asked a few questions, so this is just going to be a little quickfire thing. So Cyberfaust eleven asks: Are there any plans to release a complete box set of the movies, maybe through Shout Factory? Don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> Next, <laughs> <laughs> Donut Power asks that uh, a lot of footage was either lost or destroyed from the movie, but was there anything cut during the initial edit that you wish that you'd kept in?
2: Uh... No, I think um, I was very happy with the edit. We 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 actually didn't didn't do any press screenings for it, which is uh, brilliant because we had faith in the edit and the film. So uh, there's nothing that was cut out that you know I sort of go, oh, damn, we're missing that. I mean, they tried to. And we, uh, there was actually sorry, there was a preview in in the US. There was no preview in England and Europe and whatever. And the film was released. And it's 120 minutes. There was a preview at Fox and. A few scenes were cut, and they wanted even more scenes cut. They wanted the, the French jewel cut out. That was that stain. But they did they did cut out the World War II sequence, which was crucial to the story, hmm. um, and the film made no sense without that. <laughs> so the American version sort of suffered from that.
0: Okay. Rather aptly, Shady Highlander asks, How scary was it to have a nearly blind man doing his own sword fighting?
2: I mean, Lambert? Yes, because
0: uh, he wasn't possessed of the strongest dice, was he?
2: No. no. Um, yeah, I didn't really want to ask. He, um, he just, like, had your fingers crossed. No, he was, he, <laughs> was, he, was, he was fine. I guess the swords glinted enough, you know. Probably the most, the most dangerous thing was when we connected the, the two swords to car batteries, and one negative, one positive, and so when they, when they touch... Uh, sparks go flying it's a real current running through the two swords and they really started to burn the guy's hands because they got really hot
0: I bet they did um Wukard asks, uh, "Were there any other historical periods that you wanted to focus on?"
2: Uh, I think we felt that there was enough there. We couldn't yeah, it; would have been a three-hour movie. No. Um, but there was, there was enough there to get the idea.
0: And finally, Vampiric Demon asks if you kept any mementos from either of the Highlander films that you worked on.
2: Uh, yes, um, I actually have the Kurgan sword, the one in the, um, the suitcase, or the, the one he puts together in the yeah, hotel nice. room. I have that. And that's very very nice yeah the mechanism still works i mean you put it together you can still click it and the thing problems come out it's it's quite cool i put it together during parties and just a freak no i don't <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah christopher hold this speak it around <laughs> it's time for everyone to leave okay well there were great questions then thank you very much for answering all of them for us russell obviously now uh, we seek into our usual segment that we had with our guests of Nominate 5. Now's the time to nominate
0: 5.
2: Nominate
1: 5? Yes, nominate 5. or 3 or 4 or 6 or 9. Now's the time to nominate, nominate 5. And trust me, Russell, this music gets worse as it goes on. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay, so nominate five. What is it, Steve? Well, every week we ask our guests to nominate five
0: things it depends on which guest we have on and sometimes we can be talking about the top 5 movies sometimes we can be talking about the top 5 actors sometimes we can be talking about the top 5 scenes the top 5 music whatever it all depends on our guest and
1: our nominate 5 this week is going to be the 5 inspirational favorite movies of master mulkai so what that means is russell yeah and if you haven't prepared, that's fine. I, no one ever I, does. I
2: did, I, I, did, I did, but I've lost the notes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could have had it so perfect this week. <laughs>
0: I know. They were really good, too. I bet they are in numerical order and everything, weren't they? <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe it.
2: Can I, can we, can I send them in on a mail? No,
1: <laughs> no okay. it's fine. It, it Trust me, Russell, this goes wrong every single week. In one way, shape, or form. Some people go to seven. (laughs) Some people just... That'll be Bill. That'll be Bill. That'll be Bill. Uh, Some people will uh, just say, okay, well, I'm going to do them in alphabetical order instead of numerical order. So what would you say is a number five for you? Um... I
2: would say number five would be House of Wax in 3D.
1: The original House of Wax?
2: With Vincent Price. Yes. Thank you. The, the, for that. The, the 50s one.
1: Yes, that is a genius piece of movie. Even though I'm not going to talk too bad on it because I know that Richard Mirisch actually did produce the remake.
2: Right, but the original was directed by a one eyed, the 3D movie was directed by a one eyed director, Andre LaTocque. And his theory was that one eyed directors make better 3D films. Because they don't overuse it. Because in real life, he only sees life in 2D.
1: Okay, that makes sense. That does make sense. And it's a great choice as well for anyone who hasn't seen that version of it. Right. Okay, number four, Russell.
2: Uh, would be a film called Sweet Movie. Um, right. Dusan McAvair. He basically made two films. Um, one, I think the first one was WR, Mystery of the Organism. Um, and then a film called Sweet Movie. Now, what's incredible about Sweet Movie is it's two movies mixed into one and not because of choice. Um, It starts off basically following this girl who goes through various sexual encounters, each one getting more sort of strange and bizarre. And there was a particular scene by the end of it or halfway through the shooting during this chocolate-covered orgy. She sort of basically had a nervous breakdown. The film was shut down for like six months as he re- wrote something else. And he wrote this story of this woman in a barge in Amsterdam with the, the barge, so the bottom of the barge was full of sugar and she would get little boys and go down and kill them, blah, a blah, whatever. And so it's intercut, this film. It's quite an extraordinary, it sounds disgusting, it sort of is, but it's quite an, extra, quite an extraordinary <laughs> movie. It's been banned in many countries, but it's really worth uh, having a look. The imagery, the imagery is extraordinary. And the story yeah. behind it is extraordinary, too, when you see it and you realise that he wrote this other bit. Yeah, and you see why it's called the Sweet
0: Movie. Okay, wow. then. Well, that is an absolutely bizarre choice, but, uh, okay, what
1: is your number three?
2: <laughs> um, I'm going to say Juliet of the Spirits. Nice. Um, it's a Fellini, Federico Fellini movie um, starring his wife. Uh, it's just one of that great period of Italian cinema and people running around and go, Giulietta, Giulietta, the man. There's just sweeping cameras and wonderful colour and um, you have no idea what's going on, but it's just, it's just watching beautiful sort of cinematic poetry for, you know, two hours. And uh, yeah, you don't, you so you don't even bother reading the subtitle, just watch the movie.
1: That's a really good choice also. Okay. Wh- what do we have for number two?
2: Number two, I would say Candy. Again, very hard to find. Uh, and the reason I like this one, and I'm just picking these bizarre ones for you, it has this incredible cast. It's it's written by, it's based on a book by Terry Southern, a wonderful writer in the 60s. And it's got like Marlon Brando and Richard Burton and Ringo Starr and James Coburn and uh, the guy from the Adams Family and um, just this extraordinary cast, each doing this most bizarre thing. I mean, Brando is like this Buddhist monk in the back of a truck, and behind his little sort of temple, fake temple inside the truck, he, he's got a fridge full of beer, and then he sort of seduces the girl. Um, it, it, it's just bizarre, the whole film, and it's quite extraordinary. And Sometimes the camera will be tracking with someone, and then there'll be a gigantic mirror, and you'll see the whole crew. I think it's quite radical and good.
0: Okay, yeah. with peace and love, man, with peace and love. Yeah. <laughs> um all right then so what is going to be your number one influential movie well i'll go one
2: that everyone knows it's clockwork orange oh of course um yeah i mean i remember i was living in a little little town on the coast 50 miles from sydney and i got a train up to to go see it and i ran to the cinema and i knew i was a little late and i got in there and i sat down started watching it and i think the camera was going over the prison and I heard this, the to say, oh, this is the sad part of the story. And I sat down. I thought I'd only missed 10 minutes. And I loved the movie. And the next day I went back to see it again. And I didn't realize I'd missed the whole hour and 20 minutes. I missed every everything. <laughs> um, all the stuff with the droves and all that. So then I, then I think I probably saw it another 12 times after that um, within two weeks. <laughs> terrific cinema.
1: It truly is and Mm -hmm. it was unavailable in the UK for the longest time I think it only got released in 2000, 2001 officially. Yep, after Kubrick died, yeah. I I actually went to see it in a cinema in Northwich that got in a hell of a lot of trouble for screening it.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah (laughs) I saw it 12 15 years ago at the Man's Chinese there was a week where Warner Brothers were doing Every day they would do a different decade, like they do the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, 60s. So obviously he was part of the 70s. Each decade they showed two films, which they thought represented the decade. And so in the 70s decade, which was a Friday, they showed The Exorcist and Clockwork Orange. So The Exorcist came on at like 8 o'clock and it was the full version with, with her crawling on the roof and all that as a spider. And Freeman was there uh, and I got to chat with him. And then there's the intermission. And then they show Clockwork Orange about 11pm or midnight or whatever. And the audience, a lot of young people in the audience, and they obviously never seen Clockwork Orange before. And so the first, the first half of the film, they're cheering away. Um, actually, not so much. But when it started getting nasty, it went so quiet. Yeah, they thought, they thought it was a lot of fun, like the first, 50, probably the first 20 minutes. And then they realised it was a little bit too much. And then they just, I think they enjoyed it, but they sort of got very quiet.
1: Well, Russell, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here today. And actually, obviously, there's always one spot in the show that we have where we ask, uh, you know, what's going on, or what's coming out, what are you working on, um, etc., cetera, et, at, well, et cetera. At
2: the, at, the, at the moment, I'm working on a, on a script which is nearly finished. I'm pretty excited about it. This has been my third third screenplay that I've written. I've had two. They've both been filmed, Bait and uh, Talus the Mummy. Um, and so, yeah, I'm pretty excited about this new one. Uh, it's been my COVID, my COVID period of writing.
1: Yes. And, and trust me, it has been a, an absolute pleasure working with you over COVID as well. Uh, we, we have had the chance to go back and forth this year again. on the odd project here and there. And hopefully we'll get to do it again. Yep. But the main question we want to know, Steve,
0: is what's in the box? What's in
1: the
2: box? What's in the box?
1: What's in the box? What's in the box? Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that definitely needs a music video, Russell. Get on it.
2: <laughs> What's what, what what is in the box?
1: Steve what's in the box? Well this
0: is the point of the show where Andy tries to improve my movie education by getting me to see movies which aren't necessarily full of car chases and big explosions and gratuitous nudity. So Andy is going to pick out the name of a movie from a box which he certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. If I haven't seen it then I go away, and I watch it the night before we record our next podcast. If I have seen it, then we keep drawing a name out until we find one that I haven't seen, and I watch that. Okay. So, Andy, what is this week's movie? Well,
1: uh, this is going to be a test, because I think you've seen this. Okay. But have you seen Luc Besson's 1994 movie, Leon, known as The Professional in the US? We. Oui. That's a yes. Great film. It is a great film. Gary Oldman's best. And yep. um, Okay, this next is for Matilda. Ah. Uh, and next, no impressions, please. <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> I can impress if I want to. Okay, the next. Enough, uh, we just mentioned William Friedkin, but have you seen The French Connection? Uh, yes, yes, I have. Oh my God, two in a row. What's going on? I don't know this is right. You're gonna to have to start lying soon. I will. Okay.
0: <laughs> We're gonna have no show left at this, right?
1: Okay. You've got Jason Reitman's Juno. Juno, you know? no. Right. Ooh. Okay.
0: No, no one's seen that.
1: <laughs> well, Steve will have to as of next week, and he has to come back and tell us what his thoughts are as a person who has seen stuff like Mortal Kombat, Annihilation, and Street Fighter, but hasn't seen something like Citizen Kane. <laughs> you shut your face. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, that's all right. It, at least this one hasn't got vaginas with teeth. You're all right. No, this is true.
0: And one thing that I will say is, if I am going to be watching video game movies, I could also be watching Resident Evil: Extinction. Is that not right, Russell? You
2: could. That's a that's a fun film.
0: Yes. I
1: wonder who directed that.
0: Mm, some some Aussie bloke. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so Australian blokes, they're everywhere, yeah. stopping us English directors from getting into Hollywood. Oh. <laughs> Them's fighting words. Well, once again, Russell, uh, absolute pleasure having you here today. We hope that you'll come back again at some point, and we can cover stuff like uh, Resident Evil and Talos the Mummy, which uh, I'm sure I knew one of the producers on that. I'm pretty sure I did. Probably, probably.
2: Well, Andrew and Steve, it's been a pleasure, and oh, love the show.
1: Pleasure has been uh, ours.
2: Been fantastic. Thank you.
1: Absolutely fantastic having Russell on. It's it's been, uh, you know. We've been working up to having him on, and I hope he's uh, enlightened every single one of you of some of the great movies that he has done, especially, of course, Highlander, which has a die-hard fan base. It is time to shut down the Partywood studios and head on over to Partywood After Dark. You can join us there for the luxurious yes, jazz bar setting. Yeah. yeah, plenty hell, that was loud. It was It's that karaoke mic. I told them not to put the karaoke in there. Right, um, anyway, let's cue some music. I've already got my coat and I'm dying for a drink.
0: All right, for now, this is us saying goodbye. Ciao.
1: Cannot die, MacLeod.